Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. The old trope about seniors and technology is starting to fade. A new study shows that older Americans are getting more tech savvy in recent years, less fearful of change, and more comfortable in the digital world. But this change is not universal. Buckeye State seniors lag behind those in 35 other states when it comes to being tech comfortable. Marlena... uh, yeah, Marlena Del Dijero is Vice President of Partnerships and Commercial Strategy for Seniorly, Seniorly, a research group focusing on America's elderly. Uh, Marlena Del Hierro, welcome to All Sides. Hi, so, and thanks for having me. So say sen- say that word for me, Seniorly. Uh, seniorly. Oh, seniorly, okay. <laughs> Sorry you, about you, that. You're on it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. So um, let's first talk about why uh comfort with technology has increased among seniors. I would just say the ones who are mostly uncomfortable were dying and the other ones, people about my age group, I mean, I've been around computers for 25 years, you know, it's no big whoop. So, well, this, so the, the study um, really sparked because we could just see that there's a record trend of increased users within four years. So if we really want to dig into that, the pandemic was a huge push to why um, everyone but 65 and older adults had to kind of go beyond their normal day-to-day routines. So the, the pandemic was a big um, a, a big push as well as like other companies um, and even family members of their loved ones had to really encourage mom, dad um, to use other devices so that they could connect with their grandkids or one another. So pandemic was a, was a big, big reason for the increase for sure. Um, tell us, give me some numbers on, uh, first of all, what are the um, criteria for this? What, what are you, what are you looking at? So, um, so seniorly analyzed federal data from the, across 50 states in Washington, D.C. We looked at five factors um, within this um, study to help identify like where the top tech, um, start, where the top states for the tech savvy seniors re- um, reside. So um, the first one would be access to a computer. The second uh, access to having an internet, um, an internet subscription, working remotely was another factor. The fourth one is telehealth, um, how the increase of telehealth uh, um, was impacted. And the last one is, which I found actually was pretty interesting, um, studying the average cost somebody 65 and older is spending on tech devices. So that was also the last factor there that um, then helped us rank um, states to see where the, t- the highest tech savvy seniors are. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. I'm talking with Marlena Del Hierro. She is Vice President of Partnerships and Commercial Strategy for Seniorly. That's a research group focusing on America's elderly. Yeah, uh, so um, the average amount of money spent on tech devices, what, what did you find there? So the average um, taking the 50 states in DC is $379. So that's the average. Um, and you know, DC was number one on the list and their average for the year is over 700. California was second, was over 400. Utah was 600. So it kind of varies and then goes below What do you that. make of that DC being the top? Do you think that's just because it's the, 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 the you know, the government? The hub of- I mean, I think, I mean, I think a bunch of old white guys in the, in, also, in the Congress. Also, you know, there's a population factor that could also um, be impactful there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. They were, they spent a significant higher amount than a lot of the other states on technology. 
I, you know, when I'm looking at the rankings, multiple states bordering Ohio are ranked very low. Pennsylvania, Kentucky, West Virginia, which came in last place, struggling. And what I think a lot of those states have in common with Ohio to a large degree because of its its 29-county uh, Appalachia region is access to the Internet. What's the point of getting a computer if you can't get access to the Internet? So, so yes. Um, what I would say about Ohio specifically, because uh, you know, it, yes, it ranked it ranked thirty six, number thirty six on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at the positive, eighty percent of sixty five and older adults do have uh, an inter- have internet subscriptions. However, if you look at uh, the access to a computer, it's it's tw- like a little over 12% of 65 and older adults in Ohio do not have access to computer. But when, and okay, it doesn't seem like a large number, but comparatively to other states, right. it actually is, is it actually is a large number. Cause you can, you can look at the other states on the list that are, you know, six, 5% that don't have access. So that kind of is the, that's the interesting piece here. Internet subscription is high, but computer is is there's a there's a little misconnection there and um so you're not it's not a it's not a necessarily reflective of desire um people might want to be more connected but it's access via a computer if you don't have it you can't use it well, there are factors that uh, that do impact why somebody's not utilizing technology. So there there are factors, and we actually do outline that in this study. Age related factors. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So so the the if we just focus on the top three factors, the first one, which is is the largest of the two, significantly forty four percent of older adults just or don't have the knowledge. I mean, and, and it's, it kind of is overwhelming when you think of, okay, there's so many different technology products. How is it going to impact my life in a positive way? There's a cell phone. Do you have Apple? Then there's a variety of different types of Apple phones. So just knowing what is the right tool for me. So knowledge is number one. The second one is cost, uh, right? Now there's like monthly subscriptions. So cost, again, if you don't know why is this going to impact my life, then why am I going to pay for that? And the last one is interest. So it, it's it's like you've been doing something for your entire life. Why are you going to shift something? Um, it, and you just, again, it all relates back and correlates to knowledge. So those are the main reasons why you we're finding throughout the states why it could be impactful in those different categories. Are some states better than others at inculcating seniors and introducing them, making them, helping them feel more comfortable? So I think a lot of this really is a um, hyper-local um, initiative in a way, because you have, um, when you look at organizations that are senior care focused, uh, um, intergenerational resources, it's so local. It's really hard to find like that one company that is national, right? It's everything is so local. It's about that person running that organization. Um, so I, I, it's, it's, it's real. A lot of it is just market based too. I, I, you know, you can look at DC and perhaps they just have so many, um, and so, you know, aging, um, the offices of aging, like maybe they take a bigger impact, maybe, um, advertisement, like showcasing that there are, uh, deals that you can get special discounts on technology so that older adults don't think that this is really the cost for me, but ultimately there could be that senior discount in there. Um, how are tech companies responding to this? Um, are they part of the problem? Are they part of the solution? Or is this something that they can cash in on? Because obviously there's a lot of us out there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I could, I could, a few things here. Like, so, so I am, my background's in gerontology. I've used to work in senior living. Now I'm at, um, seniorly. Um, but within the pandemic, uh, it really pushed every different industry, all tech, you know, tech related industries. You can look at Amazon. They have the Alexa. Now they're, you're incorporating different, um, age related, uh, uh uh, product tools within that feature. Um, it pushed people to think innovative because of something that was happening personally in their life. It also, when you have uh, a, a large growth of, of startup companies, mm-hmm. they see an opportunity here because this industry of, of senior care and the age-related um, segment tends to be kind of on the back burner, right? And so I would say like the pandemic really forced people to be at home and to think. And and it and and you did see not only within the senior living industry a huge just way of of uh, um that tech was being utilized, but even beyond that, I actually do think that the 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 pandemic weirdly uh, kind of pushed things forward a little bit faster. Telehealth to it, right? Yeah, I mean that was that was one of the the things that we looked at is like it was there an increase in telehealth telehealth because you couldn't leave your home, um, and then even even that like different uh, you know plans healthcare plans now have those uh, portals right there's portals now that are maybe they've already ha- they were there they existed but they're certainly improving right and there are portals that that you might've experienced back in the day that just were very hard and not user-friendly. Now everyone is investing in technology for the user, for the caregiver, for, you know, that adult, um, no matter what age you are at home. Um, what are some, do you, did you look at, or have you thought about some of the innovations? I think hearing aids are a huge part of this tech um, thing, because if you can't hear, it doesn't matter. That's, that's very true. Yeah, no. Um, so a few of the things we did, we did. So when you're looking at tech devices, uh, the biggest thing was just the smartphone within that, that four, that four year period, that was the, the number one tech device that increased over time for utilization. Um, but there was also an increase in everything else. Uh, you have, uh, the computer, you know, computer, a smart TV, and then even looking at tablets and wearables, we didn't have anything. I mean, I would, I would think that the hearing aid would fall in the wearables mm-hmm. right category, but mm-hmm. there is not a drastic, huge increase, but there's an increase that it is, is occurring with tablets and wearables within, you know, within every year. What do you think? I mean, is tablets the big thing? They're just easier to handle. I think the tablets are correlated to like FaceTiming or okay. um, video calling, which also is connected to telehealth. Um, I mean, again, everything is, is a lot of it is connection of communication and connecting with your loved ones too. Um, you adult children, when they're not able to be home with mom or dad, there are a lot of innovative tools that are wearables, right? That could be pendants um, for emergencies, that could be smart watches for seeing, you know, anything that's like now uh, measuring your your heart rate, right? All of that, blood pressure. Um, and I think that, 
again, you look at, you look at the knowledge piece that is impactful to somebody 65 and older, but if you have community, if you have family that is doing the research for you and encouraging you and helping you out with, you know, installation that really does help with everything. It does. It absolutely does. Um, what about the issue? Did you, did you talk about, or, uh, think about the issue of cognitive decline and how tech companies could uh, see that as an opportunity as well. Yeah. So we didn't talk about that in this specific article. We didn't, but I, you know, again, you're, you know, there are, um, there are programs out that out there that are focused on strengthening or, or keeping the consistency of how quick you are cognitive cognitively, you know, there are programs out there for older adults. Um, f- certainly. Uh, and I, and again, I think it's all, it, I mean, there's a technology is a tool, right? It makes things, it, it's a, it's an efficient tool. It doesn't solve the entire problem. You know, you have to, as an individual, want to do it or, or actually utilize that technology mm-hmm. device. Um, but it, it's certainly a tool, and you know, and, and a lot of companies design for the caregiver. It's what is going to make the caregiver's life mm. easier. So the caregiver, with when it comes to cognitive programming, mm-hmm. to be specific. Uh, so it's, but yeah, tablets. There's a lot of usage on tablets for cognitive um, programming. To be honest. Um, um, and then, you know, there, there are some other things that you can be creative on and YouTube that, you know, maybe you're at home and they have, I know this in senior living communities, they might play, um, you know, somebody might be in their apartment and they might have this beautiful, like YouTube video of just like going through Paris, right? Like the, the travel. So that might not be an exercise. That's, you know, what is, what is this animal say it, but it's, it is very useful and it is very impactful for somebody if they can't get outside to be in that environment that feels like they're going somewhere. I was thinking that this is a great opportunity for the VR community, the virtual reality. Um, uh, I think that that's something they would glom onto if they can afford it. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's a newer, that's a newer thing. It'll be interesting to see in the next few years, um, where we are with virtual reality. Um, but it, it's, it is becoming a bigger thing in communities and you're right. I mean, financially, you know, the, you have to be able to, uh, you know, afford those, um, types of tools. Um, again, costs, costs is in there. And again, it's, it's very early for that specific thing. It's a very early, uh, program that, we hope we'll just, it's only going to get better from there, from here, from today. Marlena Del Hierro, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This you was bet. great. Marlena <laughs> Del Hierro is Vice President of Partnerships and Commercial Strategy for Seniorly. It's a research group focusing on America's elderly. We have more Tech Tuesday coming up, so stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. 
photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. A major computer crash at the Federal Aviation Administration in January caused the cancellation of 1,300 flights and delayed 10,000 more. The first ever failure of the FAA's 30-year-old hazard notification system was a stark example of the aging technology infrastructure of federal agencies. Likewise, a government accountability office report in February called out the Internal Revenue Service for its quote-unquote archaic technology and quote obsolete and quote programming language. Arizona State University business professor Greg Dawson consults with federal, state, and local governments on infrastructure modernization. Welcome to the show, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I think I was talking about the IR, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Internal Revenue Service 10 years ago on Tech Tuesday about their aging infrastructure and how they couldn't compete with the tech, you know, with Silicon Valley for the experts to help them upgrade. What, what's going on? Well, and if, if you knew the status of what was going on from a technology standpoint within the IRS, you would just run in fear. I mean, can you imagine that tax returns are still being entered manually into a system that that's that's older than I am? I mean, uh, not, not no. too fine a point on it, but I worked at the very beginning of my career in 1984 on the upgrades to what was then the current system that's still in operation now. I mean, it's it's crazy how old this, this they, technology is. I mean, do they just not have systems in place to upgrade uh, on a regular basis like we do here at nonprofit WOSU or <laughs> is it that they can't afford to for some reason or I mean what's what's going on so and yeah a, a terrific question um, now imagine if you're a federal CIO okay and you've got and you know federal CIOs state and local uh, government CIOs these are smart people they know what the issues are imagine that they have to go to their boss and say, look, I'm going to need hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars to replace this. Some, it's probably, under best case, going to take me eight to ten years. And once I'm done with it, nobody will probably ever know it's done. What kind of a sales pitch is that that, that needs to be made? But, but, uh, but I mean, the, the, the fundamental underlying infrastructure systems are 50, 60 years old. They're 15 uh, uh, software versions behind where they need to be. And literally, the people that are out there to fix them weren't born when these systems were established and don't even learn the languages that they're speaking now. Oh, I, I in preparation for this discussion, I went and I looked to see how few universities are teaching COBOL which is the, the primary language used. It's less than a handful of universities, including mine, in the U.S. even teach the language that's, that's necessary to be able to, to do it. So, and you got this situation where you've got this really old system that was written by people who have retired or probably died, you know, for, you know, uh, many, many years ago, uh, that's being uh, uh, in this antiquated language with almost no good documentation and people don't know how to fix it. And you've got yourself a recipe here for a hacker to come in and 
just go nuts over this. Nobody knows the language. They don't know the system. They don't know the technology. And and the, the cost to replace it is, is mind-boggling. Okay, so the FAA computer crash was the first of its kind. What do we know about what went wrong there? Were, like, wires disintegrating or something or what? Well, well. so you bring up a great point. <clears throat> the mistake is to think of a computer system as, as comprised of only technology. When you think of a computer system, you need to think about its three components. The people that, that, that operate the system, the processes that they use to operate with, and then the technology itself. In this case, from everything I've read, um, a couple of contractors who, by the way, most contractors, incredibly skilled individuals, they went in and they, uh, they accidentally deleted something with the data that caused this problem. So this was actually, I don't consider this a software issue, but this is a process issue. Um, uh, the system was developed, you know, decades ago, and I'm, I'm assuming what they did, and, you know, by the way, decades ago, and I'm, I'm I'm loath to admit this, you know, to your to your many uh, audience members. But what we would do when we built these systems decades ago is we would put in little back doors. So if somebody actually entered something incorrectly, you could go in the back door into the data and you could fix it. You know, leave no fingerprints, you know, or, or anything like that, and do it. And it sounds like um, uh, for the FAA, they didn't have the processes in place. They didn't have the internal controls in place to prevent people from doing it. And these two people probably went in to, to fix a little uh, bit of a problem, but there weren't processes to make them go in and document what they were doing. Okay. So this is, this to me is a, is a process failure. Uh, all right. So given that the aviation system is automated, how worried should we be about the processes? Oh, you should be terrified. Should be terrified. I teach in uh, uh, at Arizona State. I teach in the, the business school, Masters of Accounting program, and we're all about internal controls. So, how do you make sure that 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 people don't collude, or uh, that you want to make sure that people are forced to collude to do something bad? In this case, with a lot of these uh, old government systems, um, the the internal controls on them are, are absolutely minimal. So, you got the problem that. A lot of people don't understand the way the systems work. You have processes that don't provide suitable guardrails, and then you've got people making up, you know, an honest human mistake. And I got to tell you, if I was a hacker, this is the easiest darn thing in the world to hack. So what? What are you? Can you spec? Why aren't? Why haven't they yet? What? What bigger prize than the federal government and the Internal Revenue Service? Well, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but I would be astonished if we haven't been hacked and we just don't realize it. Okay. No, let, uh, again, let's use, the, uh, let's use the IRS. I mean, again, a system that's, that's 60 plus years old, uh, uh, using software that, you know, hasn't been used for decades and decades with poor documentation, with the original creators of the software having long since moved on and nobody understanding the way it works now. And I, I, I can promise you there are fingers in there. And we just have not yet been smart enough to see where the fingers are and what they're doing. You know, I just did a segment on um, technology and older people and how the pandemic kind of fast forwarded a lot of people in a way that they might not have um because they were isolated and they needed to, they, you know, whatever. Um, 
A February 2023 report found that websites for agencies that serve the public are confusing and not user-friendly. And I'm thinking how more and more older people are depending on the Internet access to Social Security, Medicare, uh, Medicaid. I mean, all of these already like ugh stuff that you got to deal with. I'm speaking as a bureau-phobe. And I'm just wondering if they can't even get that first interaction right uh, with these websites, what hope is there? Well, so um, uh, the, the uh, gosh, what was the Federal Act? Uh, Modernizing Government Technology Act yeah. uh, from the Trump administration. Uh, I think it was 2017. Uh, what they were encouraging organizations to do is to, uh, to, to, to modernize their technology. The problem is, um, everybody modernized the front end because, as you pointed out, people like sexy little front ends to system where they can go in and it flashes lights and it looks really cool. But the problem is the infrastructure, the technology that lies under it is the problem. And this is exactly what's going on with the uh, with the IRS. They they created this. Uh, uh, where's my refund? Okay, which would go in in theory would go in and would say. Uh, you submitted your return on this date. It was entered on this date, et cetera, et cetera. You should expect to receive your refund in, in three days. But nice front end, but they didn't actually connect it to the individual master file, which is all the transactions. So it was this really glitzy, nice looking front end that didn't actually do something. Uh, 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 who's the fellow? Uh, David Hinchman at the GAO is the one who uh, who's the one who called this out. And basically said, why in the world are you putting a front end on something that doesn't actually connect to the back end? And it created a whole bunch of issues with the IRS. Drove a lot more people to uh, to call in, and you know we know what a disaster calling the uh, the IRS is in terms of getting through. You know, some government agencies are well equipped; they're well staffed. Department of Defense, spare no expense. Um, is there any kind of um knowledge sharing going on in the government that might be able to um, mitigate? You know, um, in theory, there is. And again, I, I want to establish real clearly that, that federal CIOs, these are these are people that, that have a heart for public service. Sure. So, you know, they, they absolutely want to do the right thing. But, you know, think about the poor CIO of the IRS. I mean, she's got, she's got uh, a fires burning all around her, she does not have the time to be able to convey these these lessons. Now, what I see is a lot of consulting firms are kind of spreading the message across uh, 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 different federal agencies. But, um, you know, it's really not a lack of understanding about what needs to be done. It's the the money and the will to do it. Okay. so, So, well, I'm wondering, what about the likes of Homeland Security or the NSA or, you know, these other places in the government that have a vested interest in keeping the IRS IRS safe from hackers? Well, first of all, you know what's going on in Congress right now, where they're Nothing. trying to take away the the eighty thousand yes. um, new IRS agents. So, yes. uh, so political Washington doesn't you know doesn't view the IRS fondly. So you know, NI, uh, uh, NSA, CIA, FBI, etc. They're I mean they are charged with protecting national security, and their budget reflects the fact that they are. And I I think that they're doing an excellent job. But with the IRS. 
and you you got yourself target rich environment for hackers. Um, they identified that three quarters of their I'm, I'm sorry uh, that that um, almost half of their systems are are mission critical but so antiquated that they have to be replaced. A couple of years uh, about a year ago, they identified 21 systems that were mission critical that needed to be replaced. And for uh, for about two thirds of them, they they said, okay, so this is our plan for replacing. For the other third, they were kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Um, GAO rightfully called them out on it and said, you know, this is a mission critical system and it's antiquated. And by the way, we agree with you on both. For third of these systems, you're not even telling us what your plan is to to be able to upgrade it. That's nuts. Would an upgrade I mean, technology, if used properly, is a great efficiency. It's a tool. Sure. Um, I'm just wondering if it was up to snuff. Well, let me ask you this. I guess I'm kind of curious. Are there? I mean, we're the one of the biggest and the richest countries in the world. Blah blah blah. But is there anyone else out there? Any template for success out there that the U.S. could look to? You know, unfortunately, from a size and scale standpoint, we are we're, we're huge. Yeah. I, I've got a side stream of research going on on national artificial intelligence uh, plans, and you know, we are uh, we're dismal in terms of uh, our ability to to be able to address things like that. You know, but but here's the issue, and um, you know, within the technology space, um, what a lot of uh, government organizations want to do is call a rip and replace. Just pull the whole darn thing out and put something brand new in. Um, that is tremendously costly, tremendously time-consuming, and and comes with a host of issues. Where the philosophy is going right now is something called continuous modernization. Right. So Gertner really pushes continuous modernization, and the idea is, you know, of all the things that the system does, you know, there's probably twenty percent of those components that are causing 80 percent of the problems so identify what those 20 percent components are and fix and replace those it's kind of like with a car right you can think of a car as a as a as a unit i you know drive my kids to soccer practice or you can think about it as you know a thousand separate systems in there you've got the braking system you've got the transmission you've got the cooling system usually with a car not everything goes bad all at once and so you don't often need to just sell the whole darn thing and to buy a new car but hey, let's put in a let's put in a new transmission so our transmission is causing problem the brakes are fine the body is fine that the cooling is fine but the transmission is the problem so with uh, continuous modernization you you change your frame of reference if you will from a from the system being one giant entity to a whole bunch of smaller units. And then you address those smaller units as is necessary. Oh. The advantage is, you know, a lot faster, a lot cheaper, and you can um, uh, you generally get it done uh, 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 better, faster, and, and cheaper. I guess I'm wondering, uh, for example, um, it, the, the people who are having to manually input tax returns, data, data from tax returns, I mean, yeah. start scanning them and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, like, and free those people up to do other things. Um, yep, I yep, don't know. Yep. 
And by the way, the thud you heard was my my head hitting the desk, you know, and and no solidarity for those poor people, you know, yeah. manually in your tax. But but yeah, you know, and and this is something. I mean, scanning is such. I mean, that is in and of itself an old, very stable right. technology. So you know, but again, it's not a sexy front end like you know, uh, where's my refund? Okay, so the so the will to do it is is low. And, you know, make, make no mistake, you know, this is not your home scanner. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's a good amount of work that's, that's necessary to do, but that is a great example and of something that can be done right away. We know the technology, we know the solution, and um, there's no reason this can't be addressed. Now, it's funny that you picked the transmission example from a car because I happened to have a problem with a transmission one time, <laughs> and I had to get two, and the, because the problem turned out to be bigger than a transmission. It was a misalignment sure. of the car that kept wearing out the transmission in, you know, prematurely. And I feel like we're also dealing with that larger thing too that you it has to be dealt with so there's the short-term fixes that are can be doable like you know uh getting the air conditioner fixed but the larger greater issues yeah and and, and i'll go back to the old saying how do you eat an elephant you eat it one bite at a time right mm -hmm. that's the way that we have to replace um this this aging technology we have to choose manageable chunks i.e. instead uh, scanning instead of manually entering tax returns. Uh, we have to uh, identify the functionality that's causing the issue and address those things one at a time. And we don't have the, the money nor political will to do all rip and replaces where it needs to be done. You know, I, I'm, you know, if I'm listening to the BBC or something, and you, you're always hearing about the EU doing something and addressing some kind of tech issue, uh, on, on every level, all the time, privacy, privacy um, all kinds of things. And the U.S., it's Congress does not have a taste for it. I know that there are younger members of Congress that are trying to educate and trying to bring up these issues. But, I mean, do you think, I mean, is there a sense that that's a function of it's just the intractability of it? Is there just, if they got the problem, maybe they'd be more interested in fixing it? Well, you know, uh, I, I worked with a uh, with a Midwest state, and they calculated one time they were there were something like one hundred thousand attempted hacks of their computer systems each and every day going on. I think if Congress understood how big an issue this was, I mean, you know, let's be honest, we dodged a bullet with the FAA. That could have caused you know a whole lot of, of planes crashing. I think it's those, unfortunately, it's going to be those kind of things that's going to make them get religion of the fact that we need to change these things until there is a hack of the IRS and, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of senior citizens lose a bunch of money. Will the representatives sit up and say, you know, we do need to address this. Mm -hmm. And the point is, we know how to address it. This is not, we got to figure out a way. We know the way. We need the will. Greg Dawson, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be on with you. Greg Dawson is a professor at Arizona State University in the W.P. Carey School of Business. He serves as a consultant to federal, state, and local governments looking to modernize their infrastructure. We have a little bit more Tech Tuesday coming up, so stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.
This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. Next time you want to reach for a beverage, you can make your own from scratch. Here to tell us more is Russell Holly, Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Welcome back, Russell. Thank you. All right. So this isn't just that thing where you put fizzy into the water. This is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. So for a little while now, there have been a, a, a couple of different efforts to you know make your own drinks at home. And I think one of the most popular ones is Soda Stream, which is what you just recommended yeah. there. You basically, you know, you you fizz up the water, you drop your your, you know, sugary liquid of choice into it and it, and it becomes a soda or an energy drink or or something else like that. And that's pretty common. There's been a bunch of research as to how much money that actually saves you if you right. go and do it. And it turns out that unless you're making like massive volumes of it, it, it costs about the same as buying the sodas in the store. Um, but you do have a little bit of control over what's going in there. And, and that's, it's not so much cannage and bottleage. That's right. Yeah, you're definitely saving a lot more when it comes to the packaging. Uh, you know, so there's this new company called Cana, uh, and they are taking that idea to kind of fantastic levels with what they're calling the Kena One. Uh, they're dubbing it uh, a beverage printer in the <laughs> ability to just sort of make a whole bunch of different cold drinks based on your preferred levels. It's not a 3D printer though, right? This is not a 3D printer. This is very much a tiny robot that sits on your countertop and you say, I would like something that kind of tastes like a Coca-Cola, but maybe with a little bit less sugar. Uh, and because I'm feeling funny, drop some lemon in there. Uh, and it will make you a single bespoke beverage that has those ingredients in there. Uh, if you've decided you want, you know, less caffeine or, uh, you know, or, or, or less sugar or more of the, you know, kind of syrup, you want a stronger taste. Uh, basically, the machine has a ton of different uh, ingredients inside of it in order to make a bunch of different beverages, including alcoholic beverages. Uh, and you can, uh, you know, kind of fine tune that to, you know, exactly the kind of drink that you would want. How big is it? Uh, so this is something that would sit on a countertop. It's uh, it's not terribly bigger than uh, than kind of your average instant pot for for kind of you know size. Um, it's got a bunch of little cartridges that go into the back, and the idea here is that you know you you kind of go up and uh, and and tell it what you want, and and it makes it. When you say tell it what you want, you mean speak. Or do you mean? No, no. You yeah. definitely have to punch things into a screen or or use an app in order to to okay. you know kind of specify exactly what you want. Um, you know, there's a bunch of preset uh, you know versions of drinks that are already in this thing. So if you're if you're not particularly picky like me, you can go up and just kind of push something generic and have it made. Um, but if you know if you decide that uh, it is uh, the end of your day and it's not been a particularly great day and you really just want a rum and coke, then you can ask it to do that. Um. Though and third-party brands, by the way, can have their beverages on Kena One. That's right. Yeah, Kena has designed this platform so that it works with a ton of different companies. If uh, 
Um, you know, if any organization uh, that currently makes drinks wanted to to build things uh, for Kena, they you know there's partnership plans available to do that according to Kena. It's not really clear what that looks like just yet because this isn't actually shipping to people right this second. Uh, it is uh, currently on a uh, on a reserve list that you can you can uh, put in a request for. So if I said to Kena, I Kena one, I want uh, Dr Pepper, they could replicate the Dr Pepper. They could probably get something that is as close as possible without running into uh, a really angry letter yeah. from uh, the, the, the company responsible for uh, for Dr. <laughs> Pepper. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there is you know that is a that is a known beverage. You can you walk into any grocery store and there are versions of of Dr. Pepper that exist on the shelf that do not have the official branding on them. I suspect that it would probably taste pretty close to one of those. Um, it's expensive at first glance, nine hundred bucks. Um, but since it can do so many different things, right? Can it do coffee beverages? It doesn't do anything warm. This okay. is specifically any cold drink. So it can do like a cold brew or, or something like that uh, if if you wanted something like that, but definitely not any uh, any hot beverages. Um, and the, the flexibility here really kind of seems like it would be perfect for a small office or like a shared kitchen or something like that. I don't know that I would necessarily put this in my house unless it was a big house full of people that are very picky about the things that they drink. Um, but uh, but at nine hundred dollars, you'd have to do quite a bit of of use for it uh, in order to justify any kind of offset that you would see from not using as many you know single use plastics or or you know kind of uh, and, and anything like that that you would get. Plus, you know, on a on a per beverage cost, um, it's definitely going to be cheaper than than going out to a bar or something like that after work uh, once you've used it you know a half a dozen times. Um. The cartridges inside the machines, it says they only last a month, but I'm trying to figure out based on what. I mean, a month So for a one... lot of the cartridges that they make have um, like actual fresh ingredients in there. It's not just like syrups and stuff like okay. that. So a lot of times it's the actual like expiration of the ingredients that are being used, things like mint leaves and, and stuff like that, um, where preservatives can only keep it for so long. Well, what about garnishes? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, that would be really cool. We're really we're getting much closer once we have that conversation to those like robot bartenders that are uh, that, that you see it uh, at a bunch of high end, you know, like uh, hotels and stuff that'll that'll shake the, the canister for you and put a mint leaf on it. This isn't that, but it's okay. it's not terribly far from it. The brand ambassador is Patrick Stewart, Stewart of Star, Star Trek fame. Um, and the company CEO says that the beverage printer is the closest thing to a Star Trek replicator. That is true. And what a great idea to get Sir Patrick Stewart involved in something like this, who uh, infamously only ever used the replicator to order warm drinks. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's neither here nor oh, there. See that. Now, there you go. There you go. There you go <laughs> on me. Uh, all right. Changing shifting gears. Uh, Microsoft Edge uh, uh, has an experimental feature now for its web browser. It uses machine learning to increase the resolution of low quality video. I'm wondering, why would you use this in the first place? Yeah, so if you've ever been on YouTube and you see something that's maybe been recorded on a less than stellar camera or it's it's something that uh, you know was was recorded a long time ago uh, and you like full screen that video, you notice that uh, there's there's a bunch of little blocks all over the place. Like there's uh, you know like something maybe the motion shifts too quickly or something like that and and there's there's a whole bunch of kind of like jagged edges and stuff. It's very clearly not what was actually happening when the camera was pointed at it at the time. Uh, that is almost always the result of uh, either a um, you know kind of a lower megapixel camera that that captured something that is now being blown up to to size, uh, or the way that that video was recorded 
um, you know, caused, you know, kind of video artifacts and stuff like that. We've gotten really good at, you know, making cameras and phones and with software that's really good at pointing at something and getting a really clear image. Um, but that's really only been the last five years or so. So there's a lot of video on the internet that when you make it, you know, kind of the size of your screen can can have those kind of visual artifacts. Um, and that's really hard to fix uh, outside of, um, you know, kind of a what's called a video compression algorithm. Um, which is what Microsoft has done here is that, um, you know, instead of making it so that the individual person responsible for that video has to kind of re-upload a new version that is prettier or something like that, um, inside the, the browser itself is a piece of software that will try and make that video look nicer when you go to watch it. Is this, um, why is it experimental? Is it like beta testing or something or what's going on? Yeah, so this okay. is this is something that's gonna take a little while to test. Um, it actually requires a fair bit of computing power in order to, to do something like this. And, and so you have to have, your software has to work very well with the kind of hardware that is on your computer uh, in, in order to make this work. And so that's part of the experiment there is uh, Microsoft is trying to work with um, a couple of different companies that make graphics cards for laptops and desktops in order to make sure that this works well for as many different computers as possible. Um, and um, there are stipulations for people who want to try it, right? Yeah. So right now, this is uh, this is very much something that you have to uh, request access to inside of uh, Microsoft Edge. There's a, a limit on uh, the kinds of videos that this will work on at the moment, but it is something that Microsoft is planning to kind of expand pretty rapidly um when they do beta testing i i think i've probably asked you this before but i'm just kind of curious I mean, how, do they send out surveys to people about how it's working or how does that work yeah so it depends on the company um microsoft has a, a program that it calls the insiders program that anybody can sign up for and be a microsoft insider and among other things you can kind of choose different topics uh, from within Microsoft's ecosystem that you are personally interested in, and you can, uh, you know, be granted access to kind of early versions of stuff. Um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, very excited Xbox gamers who are familiar with this, this concept for, you know, kind of early versions of software that gets put on gaming consoles and things like that. But the, the, you know, this system really does work with just about everything inside of Microsoft. And Microsoft isn't the only one doing it. Intel's got their foot in the door. Both uh, Intel and AMD have versions of this that have to be kind of dealt with. And in both cases, uh, they're very limited to the kind of hardware that is, you know, currently on that platform. So, you, you, you know, that only works, the Intel version of it only works if you have an Intel processor. And the NVIDIA version only works if you have an NVIDIA graphics card. Uh, whereas the, the stuff that we're seeing here from... Uh, from from Microsoft works on a bunch of different stuff because it's actually built into the web browser. How uh, how far back can it go as far as fixing things? Um, I'm thinking of you know family you know uh, uh, Super Eight videos that have been now put on v VHS tape, then is now on some kind of CD somewhere, which is I think where my family videos are somewhere, which I can't play anywhere anymore. Um, or DVD, DVD, you know, or whatever. But I mean, what? How far back? What's the expectations that it could affect really old stuff? So Microsoft has made it clear that what they really want to focus on here is stuff that is in that 720p or lower range, um, which basically means, uh, you know, a, a something that would play normally on a television from, uh, you know, let's say five or six years ago. 
and 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 look fine and kind of before that. So um, you know, it's not looking at taking uh, a high definition video and making it ready for 8K TVs or or you know something crazy like that. This is designed pretty much specifically for what it is that you were talking about. There okay. is, um, but but more. Uh, digital video than than uh, you know something that had been recorded analog. Um, now what you'll see is there's there's quite a bit of software that exists out there that will take um, you know older DVDs or VHS and convert it so that it can be played in YouTube. Um, and in those cases, you you will occasionally run into those kind of blocking problems that Microsoft is going to try and fix here. Um, Twitter links and pictures were broken and now they're not. Uh, I you know I I just Twitter is so weird right now it's mostly ads and i don't even i don't even notice if it's broke i can't tell if it's broke anymore but just before noon on monday twitter experienced some problems with its links and pictures what happened uh so in an effort to implement a change that had been announced recently where uh twitter wanted to start charging people to use uh, what is called an API, which is stuff that allows it to, to use a third-party application to publish on Twitter. Um, in, in an effort to implement that policy, uh, they accidentally um, used it on themselves uh, and, and wound up making it so that every link and every image that was on Twitter um, had reached its API limit and requested that uh, the person in charge of that pay more, um, which was very silly because it was Twitter uh, that, that was responsible for that. Um, and a, uh, in an update, once it had been resolved, Elon Musk said that uh, the issue um, shouldn't have happened because uh, he said that the the stack, the software stack within Twitter was very brittle uh, and, and he was looking to replace it. That sentence from a technical perspective is nonsense. Um, so it's not, it's not immediately clear what happened there other than a software change was pushed to production before it was tested, um, which is common in Twitter before Elon Musk took over. Um, but this is the kind of consequence you run into with something like that. And now there's fewer people around to pick up the pieces. There are far fewer people around to pick up the pieces. The, the most recent set of layoffs, which was not the first since uh, Elon had been there, was over 200 people. Um, and uh, according to a, uh, a report from, uh, uh, I think, Pointer, um, there was a single software engineer assigned to this particular change. Um, so not great, uh, but but a solid sign of, you know, the, the kind of issues you can expect for the immediate future uh, if you continue to be a Twitter user. Russell Holly, thanks for your uh, time today. I really appreciate it, as always. Thanks for having me. Russell Holly is Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. That's it for Tech Tuesday today. Thanks for joining us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.